Hello, and welcome to the BA Brew. I'm Debbie. I'm Alex. And I'm Julie. And today I'm very excited because our subject is something that might sound a little bit different for business analysts because the subject is pirates. And I have on the brew with me two people who know a bit about pirates and what pirates got up to. So firstly, I have Alex Barker, and some of you will know Alex from her presentations at the BA Conference Europe and also at the BA Manager Forum. And Alex is very much involved in bringing to all of us in our community and in other communities the Be More Pirate movement. And I'm also pleased to introduce Julie Walker to the BA Brew. And Julie has recently had her first novel published called Bonnie and Reed. And Bonnie and Reed were two female pirates from the 1720s. So it's going to be interesting to find out from Alex and Julie what we can learn from these pirates. So let's start with you, Julie, first of all. What drew you to the story of Bonnie and Reed? Um, well, I first heard about Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed from an Adam Ant song, of all things. I was a big Adam and the Ants um, fan, and on the Prince Charming album, and for those of us of a certain age, I'm sure we all know exactly what that um, album cover looks like, Stripe Across the Face. Um, and there was a song called Five Guns West, and in that he was talking about um, women leaders, you know, women, well, he's talking about Amazonians, but he also mentioned these pirates, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed. And I'd never heard of these women before, and I was just fascinated by them. And this was around about the time that Vivian Westwood was kind of launching her pirate uh, clothing collection, and she was talking about being very inspired by these women as well. And I was just fascinated and really excited to find that, you know, I, I obviously heard about Blackbeard and people like that. I had no idea at all that there were women who actually went to sea as pirates. Um, and as I kind of started to look into that, um, it, this I mean, the story you literally couldn't make up. Luckily, I didn't have to because their own story was kind of so incredible. But um, both remarkable characters. Um, Anne Bonnie basically grew up as a plantation owner's daughter in the Carolinas in America. And she basically threw all of that away to marry a really feckless servant who actually she found out very quickly was just after her money, but she was disowned by her father, ran away to sea, and basically just having been with her new husband for a couple of weeks, realised, you know, what she'd lumbered herself with. Um, and uh, she was basically in uh, Nassau in the Bahamas. It was called New Providence then. And until a couple of years before Anne actually went there, it was the most notorious pirate hangout in the Caribbean. And the king had actually sent uh, one of his governors, Woods Rogers, to bring um, sort of law and order to the Bahamas. And he'd, give, he'd pardoned all the pirates on behalf of the king. Um, and so there were a lot of very bored pirates hanging around New Providence at the time. And Anne managed to meet one sort of almost immediately, someone called um, Captain Jack Rackham. Uh, you may have heard of Calico Jack. That's one and the same. And basically, um, she persuaded him to steal a ship pull a crew together, and they went off to sea with her dressed as a man, um, you know, as you do when you're on your honeymoon. Um, and then, again, just if you then sort of take a move back in Mary Reed, she was, um, she was born in Plymouth, 
had a very unusual childhood. Um, she'd been dressed as a boy, uh, basically passed off by her mother as her dead brother, so that she'd continue to receive money from um, the, the grandmother there. Um, and basically, uh, when her grandmother had died and um, basically left them penniless because she was, a, she was a very religious woman and had left all of her money to missionaries rather than continue to provide for her family, uh, Mary had actually gone into service again, still dressed as a boy, um, but very soon got bored of, you know, actually having to do some fairly hard work. You know, it really would have been um, quite quite a task at the time to be a servant, you know, at that sort of level. And she basically ran off to sea, realised almost immediately she hated the Navy. And so she jumped ship in Holland, uh, where the army was recruiting for soldiers. And she signed up as a soldier. And she fought in Flanders for several years, was very, very well thought of in her regiment. Obviously, she was still passing herself off as Mark Reed, not Mary Reed. Women didn't go to war. Um, and I think she'd probably have stayed there had it not been for the fact that um, she basically fell in love with her tentmate. Um, and obviously decided that, well, actually, you know, this is far more important than me continuing to be a soldier. So revealed herself to be a woman. Um, they were going to get married. Um, the, the troop, apparently, it was a bit like a Christmas celebration. Everyone was absolutely delighted for them. There was a whip round so that they could actually get some money to put a, a deposit down on an inn in Breda. And Mary and Arnold went off to run this inn. Um, you know, as and she kind of obviously became very famous as, you know, this woman who used to be a soldier and she would have had, you know, all of her patter about, you know, yes, Mary Reed and Mark Reed, one and the same, come in, come into my pub, buy drinks and I'll tell you all about it. Um, unfortunately, the that sort of stability of life didn't last very long for Mary because unfortunately her husband died of a fever. Um, and so she decided to head off to sea again, but she thought, well, May as well try for a new life in the Americas. So I'll head over to the Americas. And somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, that ship was kind of caught up by a pirate ship. It happened to be Jack Rackham's. And it, incredible though it is, there was Anne Bonny. And these two women, dressed as men, were basically facing each other off. And, of course, they, I think it's just that that, for me... Is the absolute magic of it. it it's so unlikely utterly incredible you know there's lots of history of other women like hannah snell christian davis either dressing as men to go off and be soldiers or to become sailors but i've never heard of a story where two women met accidentally in the middle of a sea um, and i just thought that was remarkable because if, if you look at the timings of when they would have met it was approximately 80 years before pride and prejudice was written. So at the time, I remember when this album came out, you know, I was at school, I was doing Pride and Prejudice as a set text. And I thought that all women did at those times was sort of sit at home with their embroidery or their crochet, waiting for Mr. Darcy to knock on the door to see if they'd marry them. And it was just pretty mind blowing for me, really, that there were women who were going out and becoming pirates. And they yeah. really were active parts of the crew. You know, they, they plundered, they fought, they injured and killed people. You know, they were they were not in this just for, you know, the costume or anything else. 
this was a full-time job. So I think just that refusal to follow norms and that they were out there doing this incredible thing. And I just thought, why don't we all know about these women? This is yes. just incredible. And it's amazing because, Alex, you mentioned Bonnie and Reed in your presentation, don't you? Yeah, I do sometimes. It depends on how much time we've got. And I just want to add on to that what Julie just said, like, come on, Netflix, like, let's get a, a depiction of this incredible story because it is, you know, it's so remarkable. It's it's all has all the hallmarks of a story where you think, oh, that, surely someone's fiction, that, that's fictional, like that. this is too coincidental. And how do they end up? It, you know, like this, and there's some great lines as well. But funnily enough, you know, pirates, if you look at Pirates of the Caribbean, the most famous pirate sort of fictional um, story, and even Black Sails, which is my favourite pirate TV show, still don't get the story of, of Bonnie and Reed. It's still dominated by the male pirates and their stories. I mean, even today, like with, you know, with all the understanding of feminism and equality and... <laughs> We still don't um, centre these women and their their story, um, which is yeah. just fascinating, and just shows you how much the legacy lives on around. It's still like Hollywood still wants to have women um, in this situation depicted depict in a different way. The part yeah. that I um, bring up uh, that I that's in Be More Pirate, which is really interesting, is um, that there's a famous. Um, drawing of of Anne Bonny where she is sort of topless and she's carrying the flag and she has surrounded by sort of other pirates and it bears such a resemblance to Lady Liberty leading the people the Eugene Delacroix painting which is in the Louvre and he was known to be fascinated by pirates he was obsessed with the Byron poem the Corsair and uh so it's very very obvious when you look at the two pictures side by side that Delacroix was clearly just drawing on Anne Bonny to have this incredible, beautifully painted um, depiction of a woman leading and fighting for freedom. Yeah. And that went on to inspire the Statue of Liberty. So this, this through line, the biggest symbol of freedom that we have in the West is a female pirate. <laughs> that oh, amazing. Is amazing right I so love i love it i think man would have loved that <laughs> it's fascinating that they they had the the feeling of breaking out of norms and i think you mentioned norms julie and and i really like that you know and not not applying the assumptions of society but actually saying, no, I want to do something different. And, you know, when I, I read the story, and similarly, Alex, when you talk about the pirate code and, you know, how they have their own code of norms, if you like, rather than the ones society imposed on them. And the way, if you like, through history, we're sort of encouraged that, you know, the Navy good, the pirates bad. And it isn't actually quite that simple a lot of the time, particularly when you look at the times when these things were going on. And I find that quite fascinating because it causes me to question assumptions and what I'm thinking about things, which is something, you know, as business analysts, we have to do all the time. As business people, we have to do all the time. And so you have that sort of resonance, really, of that, no, let's not just accept what we're told, 
let's actually look at maybe something else and something a bit deeper sometimes within ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that's a really interesting take on it, because if you actually look at the Navy at the time, it had a terrible reputation. You know, the men were kept on really poor rations. Quite often, they, you know, their uh, wages didn't reach back home. You know, a lot of um, the, the wives and children left behind fell into destitution um, because they just had no way to sort of make that living. And really, I think it, it's fascinating because obviously Anne is a very different case because she came from a very rich background, which she just threw away. But Mary, you know, really the choices for women at the time, they were really quite limited, you know. Prostitution was a very obvious thing. You know, it might be that they could go into service where again, you know, it would be incredibly long, hard hours, very gruelling work for very little money. And actually, piracy was quite attractive to not only men in the Navy, you know, quite often it wasn't just that if a ship was plundered, they'd be going in to find treasure. They'd actually be looking for other crew members. You know, they would welcome people onto their own ships. Um, and I think that when you actually look at how the pirate ships operated, it was a really attractive model. It seems quite attractive even now. You know, the fact is it didn't matter, you know, who you were, what age you were, what sex or sexuality, it didn't matter what colour your skin was. If you did your job and you worked hard, you'd get the same share as everyone else. The, the captain got twice the share, so some things don't ever change, but... Um, you know, you got your equal share of whatever the ship got. And, you know, they were very much encouraged, you know, to enjoy life, you know, that thing of, um, you know, a short life, but a happy one. Um, and actually, it was it was probably quite a short life for a lot of people at the time, you know. So actually, it was it was a possibility that you might actually make enough money to to retire, you know, which for most people, you know, unless you'd been born rich, that was that was an unthinkable luxury, really. So you yes. can really see why that was sort of an attractive way of life. But I do think that the, the articles, which was what you mentioned, uh, Debbie, about, you know, the, the fact that they had to sign up to a code of conduct in order to go on a pirate ship, it, it was actually very democratic. You know, the captain would be um, sort of selected by the crew and nominated. And he could also be kind of, you know, taken away from that position if he wasn't doing... Um, what he needed to do. In fact, Jack Rackham had actually got his first captaincy when he basically accused his um, his captain of, of cowardice and uh, him and the crew actually set the captain adrift, you know, and Jack was elected as, as the captain of that ship. So it was weirdly um, a very, I think, just a freeing environment for an awful lot of people. You know, they just felt, well, actually, we're working for ourselves now. We're not actually working to make somebody else rich. We're working to make ourselves rich. So I think, you know, there's a lot of parallels to, you know, how we kind of look at things now as well. And I think this is something you bring out, Alex, isn't it? Oh, you yeah. We can learn. Yeah, I mean, Judy's nailed it. Like, <laughs> that's everything I would say um, about it, about, you know, all those pirate ideals we're still not enacting. You know, even the idea that the captain had two, two times more than the average crew member. We have, like, hundreds of thousands of percent, like, the, the, the leaders of organisations will, um, you know, I don't know, the CEO of Sainsbury's earn three million when they, they don't even put, their staff on um, living wage. Um, and we're seeing 
much bigger disparities today. So we still haven't really embodied or embraced a lot of those prior ideals. Um, and you're right, I think freedom is at the heart of it. It's a really freeing environment for people on all levels, um, economically, socially, and it's just still incredibly radical. And I'm and my my mission is to make sure that everyone knows about that and stops. Yeah. Stop, I mean, because we're still the problem is we're still buying into the idea now that the establishment has has your best interests at heart on some level, and it's just not the case, and it never was, um, and that's yeah the biggest parallel that to a degree. I mean, it's it's a different context, but they're still sort of being bought into a form of making other people richer um, and and suffering as a result of it, whether it's suffering. Um, uh, you know, just at a mental health level, um, I think that this still is incredibly widespread. Mm. So bit by bit, I try to work on what um, what that freedom looks like for people in a modern sense and in, in a modern business sense at an individual level, because it's what you said, Debbie, isn't it? It's norms. Um, the, the, the word norm is derivative from normal, right? It's what what you think is uh, true around you and it can be so hard to pull yourself out of um away from that of understanding what that it's not that it doesn't have to be that way I suppose is the best way of putting it because yeah. you know what is for you it just is what is so I'm so fascinated by what has to happen what kind of interventions and things have yeah things have to happen in order for people to be able to step back and, and say, hang on, and do that questioning, what, what does it take? And it takes different things for different people. That's my experience. And so the more we can design training and learning experiences and workplace environments to enable people to, and, you know, also comes down to courage, right? Because that's what Anne Bonny and Mary Reed had in spades. For whatever reason, we can never really know. Anne Bonny didn't take things at face value. She, you know, I actually wonder about love as a trigger. Because love is mm. such a deep sensation when you're in it. It's it becomes a norm in itself. And it 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 it's um it just supersedes everything else in your life. Um so that possibly like propelled her and propelled Mary when she was Mark as well, in some way. Um so yeah, just I'm fascinated by that. Um, yeah. I think I think the other thing for me is we live in a world of rules. We have to have rules because we have to have rules of society in order to keep stability in lots of ways. And in business, that translates that we have to have rules and standards and policies and all those types of things. The risk with that is, is that sometimes if we're looking to innovate, to change, to develop organisations that we accept rather than questioning and, and I think one of the things I remember you doing, Alex, was the exercise you do around when did you last break a rule and just thinking about that. And that highlighted something quite interesting for me because I'm such a rule follower in my life. If I'm analysing something, I question the rules. So it was a, a little bit of an interesting moment for me to actually consider it. But once you do start questioning rules... Um, particularly if you're analysing to improve or innovate, it's amazing how often they're not based on 
anything really it, and it, we're back to norms now it's just that's the way we've always done it sort of thing and I think the idea that we've got almost two people in Bonnie and Reed who say well actually we're we're not just going to challenge rules we're going to actively operate our lives by working to a different set of rules I think that's really really interesting and I think as people who work as, you know, as I do in business and as business analysts, actually thinking about, well, what are the rules that I value? Do you know what I mean? And one of the things about the whole pirates um, situation was there was a certain collaborative approach that went on to setting the rules, which I think is also very interesting and relevant to today's world. Mm. Completely is. I had this question come up in a workshop yesterday um, around um, the balance between collaborative decision making or consensus based decision making, which is what the pirates did, versus the times when you do need a leader. And also what comes up for me all the time is what do we do when we've got an organisation of 100,000 people, like global corporates? Um, what does pirate look like in that context in terms of democracy and equity and because you need command and control to get anything done otherwise. I kind of disagree because I think they're just ridiculously slow moving, even with command and control structures. But um, I think um, there's a certain, there's something about um, the level of trust that you have in your leader. And if you've been allowed to somewhat demonstrate faith in that leader and not have them kind of imposed into the situation that you, you have a way of voting your level of faith in what the leadership, then you can sort of allow them to go forth and make decisions was one thing. Um, and just the recognition that you need that of what is the purpose of this consensus-based decision-making process. Mm. It's not to constantly do democracy right all the time, which is like absolutely everything has to be, because it gets I get very, very tedious. It's almost it, it, it's better to think about it like as a way to keep people in check because if you have, you know, one of the reasons why I say the pirate rebellion is is always collective is because if you have one person, one lone rebel, if Calico Jack Rackham was just going forth on his own and had no crew behind him, he, you know, you can do a lot of damage as a rebel leader on your own. Look at all the dictators of the world. That's why dictators and pirates differ. So because they have this backing of this, this crew behind them and because, um, you know, it's a way of sense checking your own ideas. Like if you think, because the thing, when I say like write a new rule, Write a new rule for sure, but make sure that it's actually going to benefit the majority of people. It can't just be your crazy idea. And there's, yeah. there's so, much, so much example in the innovation world of like, I would say a lot of the tech entrepreneurs are creating things without consensus anymore. Like they're just creating because it can be done. They keep, they're putting imposing these new technologies onto the world and they are changing people's psychologies and behaviors. And there's no regulation, there's no consensus. And a pirate wouldn't behave that way because it would be... A sense that like we all want this we think this is a good way to work and live together um yeah that's my yeah. <laughs> take on that that's, that's really interesting <laughs> i mean you know because julian in your book i think one of the things that really struck me was that sort of collaboration democracy you know uh, abiding by the the values that we collectively agree and and there's a lot of strength in that, isn't there? Yeah, I think that there absolutely is. I think even, you know, in a, in a business environment, you know, to Alex's, um, so just following on from what Alex was saying there, 
I think it's always fascinating. I think that the strongest organisations that I've ever worked in, it is that sort of collective, um, it is the collective values. It is actually, we are, we have bought into this. We haven't been told that we're going to buy into this. You know, we haven't just been given something to stick on the side of our computer, which says, these are our values. You know, you've actually got to sort of feel those values. And I think if you feel those values lived and breathed, chances are it will attract the sort of people who want to support that. Um, and actually, I think it's those sort of environments as well that are the healthiest, that they encourage conversation and questioning. Um, because I, I was fascinated by what, what you said just before, Alex, and I was just wondering whether lockdown has had an impact on people accepting the way that things are, or whether there has been a bit of a shift collectively into us all kind of questioning a little bit more. Think, you know, I'm just sort of thinking um, of, you know, a friend who kind of works in finance and has been told he's got to go back to the office five days a week, and him and his colleagues have said, no, we're not going to do that. That makes no sense. Um, so I, I'm just really interested to, you know, on your thoughts on that, whether that's changed anything as well. It definitely has. Um, and on TIFA, I'd say that it hasn't changed things perhaps as much as we might we might have hoped. Um, it's def it definitely has had an impact. Um, but the you know the, the pull of not of of all those years before COVID is still incredibly strong. It's yeah, environmental pull is huge. I'd say that there's there's two things that it's done. One is um, a lot of people had what I call the no one is coming to save you moment, which when you yes. realize because there was such a catastrophic handling of COVID in the UK, it, the sense that the people that we value as leaders don't know what they're doing um, in these really critical moments has made people rethink their own view on leadership and what, what a leader looks like and whether they are it actually, that maybe they might have a better plan, especially when it comes to just managing neighborhoods. You know, if they, you can figure out that you can look after your neighbor better than the the government can then what does that say about your capacities and your um yeah your your capacities as a as a person and a, and a citizen and as a leader the second thing is the research that i've looked into on disobedience and rule breaking is that actually the further proximity that you have away from a person that you want to challenge the easier it is to challenge that's just a, a sort of uh, behavioral science thing that it's just actually easier obviously just due to the distance that you have when you're working yeah, at home yeah. so people have been able to just reclaim a little bit more agency for themselves um through that that's quite an exciting thing isn't it well do you know that's what i was just thinking i was thinking it is quite interesting we're at a moment in time where i think there is a lot of exciting things happening and the mindset shift that i think is underway and i don't think it's concluded that you know that has come out of the last few years it is very interesting because I don't know where that's going to end up but it has caused a shift and being somebody who works in business change something that innovates changes moves us forward is always going to be dear to my heart but um but anyway I, I'll have to end it there even though I think we could have gone on for about another hour but uh, I'd just like to say thank you ever so much to Alex and Julie and I hope you've all enjoyed this episode of the BA Brew. If anybody has any ideas for anything they'd like us to talk about or if they'd like to contribute to the BA Brew, please email us at babrew at assistkd.com 
And otherwise, I'll say thank you very much from me and goodbye.